Amen. Thanks, Austin. Well, good morning. Okay. Had to wait on that. Had to wait on that a little too long, so uh, I'll try it again. Good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome online. Uh, good morning to you uh, as you're tuning in to our uh, live stream. Uh, we're continuing in a series uh, here in the uh, the dead of summer, or I, I should say we're kind of officially into the dead of summer, maybe next week. Um, so thanks for, for being here, but as we continue into the summer, deeper and deeper, we're continuing into Ecclesiastes a little more deeply. Uh, a book that doesn't get a lot of press uh, or attention. Uh, there's some famous passages here and there. Uh, but on the whole, this book, in fact, uh, this part of the Bible, wisdom literature, it's called. So Job, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, Song of Songs, uh, they don't get a lot of press. They don't get a lot of attention. Uh, and it's because there's some confusing things. Uh, but I hope so far you've been encouraged and helped by what we have looked at. Uh, I know I have, uh, and so I pray you continue to as well. On the insert of your worship folder... Uh, on one side are some scriptures, and on the other side is an outline. I'm going to start with the scriptures, and so I would invite you to follow along there. The page numbers uh, for the pew Bibles that we don't currently have out. <laughs> Just realized that. Glad that those are there. I think that's helpful uh, for your reference. If you would like a Bible that these pages go with, come talk to us and we'll give you one. But uh, Or the Bible that you brought from home. Uh, nevertheless to follow along as I read through these. And, and I'm going to read most of what is there uh, as today we look at the vanity of toil. The last couple of weeks we've looked at the vanity of knowledge. Last week we looked at the vanity of pleasure. And today we're going to look at the vanity of toil. So from Ecclesiastes 2, uh, hear God's word. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man for all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils under the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. And then from chapter 4, Then I saw all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness, the two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. And then from chapter 5, As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days 
He eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. What a great statement. Then lastly from chapter 9, go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Uh, This is the word of the Lord. As I said earlier, we've spent the last two weeks uh, looking at this framework uh, for some broader themes that the the preacher is going to touch on throughout the book. Two weeks ago, knowledge. Last week, pleasure. This week, toil or work. Okay? And as we've been saying again and again the last few weeks in this series, life is gift, not gain. And if that is true, then the foolishness of chasing knowledge or pleasure or work as ends in themselves as ways to gain life, makes sense, right? Uh, The preacher is out to shake us out of our stupor and into reality, as we've seen. He says some pretty shocking things in order to help us get there, and he says a few of them in what I just read. Uh, And and, uh, we'll get to those uh, in just a minute. So look, as we, again, take a look this morning at work, the vanity, the vapor, the elusiveness of it, under these three headings, uh, if you just flip your insert over, you'll see them there. Living for work, the preacher makes an argument as to why it's foolish to live for work. Secondly, what does it mean to live one-handed in light of his call to avoid both idle laziness on the one hand and manic busyness on the other hand? And then lastly, uh, where's the power to enjoy your work as a gift come from. You have to know God has approved of you. Okay, so those are the three points and the three areas that we're going to look at. Incidentally, I'm going to talk a lot about enjoyment because in these passages, he says, eat and drink and find enjoyment in your work. Uh, and, and I realize, uh, particularly in light of even current events and, he, and even uh, current or recent communications, Uh, from or in our church, there may not be a whole lot of joy radiating. Maybe some confusion, frustration, dare I say grumpiness. Uh, And so I want to challenge you to uh, find joy this morning as we're talking about the vanity of toil, but also challenge you to find joy even as you come here. For however long all this madness lasts, right? Because we at least have joy uh, that Jesus promises us. And we'll get to that uh, in just a minute. So first, take a look at that top passage on your insert, okay? That first paragraph from Ecclesiastes chapter 2. 
the thought that leads the preacher to consider the vanity of all his toil and work is that is what will happen to it once he's gone. Have you ever considered that? Those of you who are well into a career, right? Have you considered what's going to happen to my work once I'm gone? Right? If you work to build a legacy, to leave your mark on the world, the reality is that legacy, that mark, will be taken up by the next person, or maybe it won't. Uh, Whatever you build, someone else is going to take over. And that someone, here's the thing, might destroy what you've built. And I I, I can think of examples just in the room right now, and I I don't want to... You know, I don't want to give them or say them, but of people who've built great things. And then someone comes along behind them and could just completely destroy that. The preacher says, that's a vanity and a chasing after the wind, right? It's a familiar story. You've probably heard it before. Uh, I've heard it around here. A man, maybe a pair of brothers build an enormous company from nothing. They buy land, they sacrifice themselves, they risk, they almost go bankrupt, but over time, they make investments and those investments produce an abundant return. So much so, in fact, that their grandchildren don't even have to work for the family company. They just pull from the interest of the stock price or the trust fund. They just live off the proceeds, right? But then uh, their, their grandchildren's children Spend all the inheritance, make foolish business decisions, and eventually the company folds. Have you heard a story like that before? We've all heard stories like that before. Some of stories like that we've heard here locally. That's verse 21 of chapter 2. Let me read it again. He says, sometimes a person who's toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. And you know what happens. They don't toil for it. They don't appreciate it. They haven't put in the time and the years and the blood, sweat, and tears. And it falls by the wayside. But here's what he's trying to get at. See, living for work will mean you won't rest. If you believe that your life is yours to do with whatever you choose and that it's in your control, can I get an amen of the last, well, pretty much 2020, let's just say, we've been proven, uh, or shown rather, by the Lord time and time again, you ain't in control. Right? Uh, For the Winfrey's 2020 began uh, three weeks in with my brother-in-law getting the news uh, due to some back pain that uh, he probably had uh, leukemia. And they told him recently, he just told us this this last week, they told him recently, he said, you know, if I hadn't had that back pain, how would I have known? And they said, you wouldn't have. And he said, well, what would have happened? They said, you'd have been dead within two or three weeks. And and so the, 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 the reality that, wow, he wasn't in control, we weren't in control, and then... Of course, six weeks later, the coronavirus decides to take over the world and prove to our president and every other president and every other human being on the planet, vain in control, right? So as you consider what it is that you are toiling over, where the blood, sweat, and tears are really pouring out of you, trying to build something, 
be, be mindful that if you don't rest now, a time is coming when you're going to be forced to rest permanently, right? It may mean working 70 or 80 hours a week to get ahead of the competition. These are just a few examples of how this works itself out. Proving that the bonus you received last year wasn't a waste, right? Believing that endless growth in your business sector is possible. Where does it end, someone asks you, and you say, oh, never. It never ends. We just endlessly grow. (laughs) Seriously? David Gibson says... You're spending your life trying to punch above your weight. Verse 22, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? What has a man? What has a woman? And of of course, his answer is just more aggravation, right? More stress. The preacher says this is how you know if you're living for work. If the vexation, which the word vexation really means annoyance, and if, if you're like me, there are times when you can get annoyed by your work, right? It can be annoying. You can just have an annoying day, maybe an annoying week. So if the vexation, the frustration of work is such that even in the night your heart does not rest, there it is, verse 23, his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. Has anybody ever been there? Maybe you're there now. What does that feel like? The preacher says, you know you're living for work when even in the night your heart does not rest. And then the gain you hope to achieve matters more than the gift of whatever work you're engaged in. Because a chronically restless heart will have chronically physical effects, right? You, all, you know the ones I'm talking about. High blood pressure, heart disease, Right? But a chronically restless heart also has spiritual and emotional effects, like anxiety, like a short temper, fear, sorrow. That's what he says in verse 23. All his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. However, what's the sin underneath the sin of living for work? Well, self, of course, okay? And so look there at the second paragraph. We're going to do some, uh, as a friend of mine calls it, sinology for a minute, right? We're going to do, do some studying of, of sin, uh, both as a general rule and then in ourselves. Look at chapter 4, verse 4, okay? It's the first verse there in the second paragraph. The preacher makes an honest observation about the power of envy and how it contributes to the vanity of our work. Then I saw all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. That's a very honest assessment about what's driving you and I in our toil, Envy, right? And it's so subtle, you don't even realize it's there until maybe you're gloating over the fact that your good friend from work didn't get the same promotion you did. Or or their team isn't performing so well in the company rankings. And so if we're honest with ourselves, so much of what is driving us to work, 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 work is seeing others fall. There's an emptiness, there's a lack. Maybe you realize you're not as talented as the next person. Uh, maybe your team isn't as good as the other team or you're not as gifted in your class. And seeing other people fall, or better yet, engineering their fall, helps ease that. And so rather than love of neighbor, we're driven by hating them in envy. And that's what he's getting at. 
He says, of course, the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. And so you get caught here, right? We all get caught here. Both verses 5 and 6 are calling attention to the two extremes of how we don't love our neighbor, how we in fact despise our neighbor. So look at verses 5 and 6. As you might guess, the preacher's aiming to show we're destroying ourselves too in the process. The first way is laziness. Verse 5, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. What a great picture. That, that's disgusting, right? But it gets your attention. Your work has turned you inward to such a degree that instead of embracing your life and giving away to others, the fool gives himself to himself. It's, it's a picture of the corrosive effects of self-absorption. The fool folds his hands, right? He curves in on himself and eats his own flesh. He will eventually consume himself because there's no thought about others or what is to come. That's that problem. But on the other side, verse 6 describes the vanity of manic busyness. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. What does that mean? Well, in our culture, this is probably more prevalent. This is probably more of a temptation, right? Working constantly for tomorrow and toward tomorrow because why work with one hand when you can use both hands? Living with a sense of dissatisfaction that causes us to move from one thing to the next frenetically, frantically, because we're hoping to, to quote, get there, maybe by, well, tomorrow, right? It's always thinking about tomorrow. Again, let me quote from David Gibson. He says, the preacher's point is that to live this way is like shooting yourself in one foot so that you can hop more quickly with the other. Uh, why not stop and enjoy today in very real ways? Tomorrow's promotion will bring more pressure. The higher degree uh, will just teach you how little you know. The marriage will connect you to another sinner for life. The deadline will pass only for another to come racing toward you. Listen, there's always more to do and perennial guilt to live with when it's not being done. There's always more to do and there's always going to be guilt that you have to live with, that whatever you're trying to get done isn't getting done because it's never always, never all going to get done. Something really bad must have taken place out there because there's lots of, lots of sirens. I apologize for that. So live the life you have now instead of longing for the life you will have but which you actually can't control at all. Let me say that again. Live the life you have now instead of longing for the life you will have, but which you actually can't control at all, right? Working for tomorrow only works when there's another tomorrow. Again, part of the point of Ecclesiastes, as we've been saying the last few weeks, is to help you prepare to die well. And so to think about death first and then work backward. Thinking about how to die well will help you Learn how to live wisely and well in the present. The preacher's message to all of us is this. Stop chasing the wind. Stop thinking the future will be better and easier. Stop working or thinking for the sake of what's next. Now, my children are 19 and 17. 
Parenting them is not better and easier than it was when they were nine and seven. Right? Ecclesiastes would challenge me to have enjoyed them at nine and seven and to enjoy them now at 19 and 17. Parenting them is certainly different now than it was at nine and seven, but it's not better or easier because I finally arrived or I've gotten them to this point and back here, man, if I could just get to this point and now that they're at this point and what am I thinking? Man, if I could just get them out of the house. No, I'm just kidding. Not really my thought, but you can see where that goes. It just never ends. And the first half of verse six is the preacher's argument for living toward love for neighbor instead of love for self. Instead of envy, he says what? Live one-handed. Living one-handed is realizing rest and peace are more important than wealth and success. One hand full is more than enough. Jeremiah Burroughs, who was a Puritan pastor, wrote a a famous book. If you've never had a chance to read, highly recommend it. It's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Notice the title. It's rare, but man, is it valuable. And he says, contentment and peace come through subtraction, not addition. The Christian, Burroughs said, brings his desires down to his possessions. I I thought that was a great way to put that. See, there are two ways to get enough. One is to accumulate more and more. The other is to desire less. Hence, living one-handed. But but how? Right? How do you become a person with the power to enjoy life as a gift, not work through life in order to gain? Because as we've been saying, life is gift. It's not gain. And your work has... Whoops, your work has been given to you as an enjoyment, right? As a gift. He says over and over again in these passages uh, on your insert, eat and drink and find enjoyment in the toil to which you've been called to toil under the sun. So how do you get that power? You have to know you're approved. And that leads me to uh, third and finally, Uh, where I want to finish. If you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, or you're tuning in online and you're not a Christian or you're uncertain at best, let me say I have good news uh, for you. Wherever you are on that spectrum, you don't have to chase the wind. You don't have to work to find meaning and approval and love. If your faith is in Jesus, you are loved. And you're loved in a way that no human could ever love you. The love of God for us in Jesus is unconditional. It's unmerited. No work, no effort of ours could ever warrant God extending his love to us. That's the good news of the gospel. You'll never put in enough hours at the office or attend church enough times or give enough to earn God's approval. If we had a prayer meeting for mercy and justice three days a week and you came to every single one from now until the day you died, it wouldn't make a difference. In terms of the love of God for you in Christ. Because Jesus earned God's approval for you. He related to God the Father as his ultimate love. And loved his neighbor more than himself. He kept God's law. He enjoyed God's gifts. But he only worshipped and served God himself. And so now, because Jesus has earned the Father's approval. With, well, the words that the Father spoke over him. My son, in whom I'm well pleased. 
And because he's earned those words, if you're united to him and when, if you're not yet, when you become united to him by faith, you too have the father's approval. Jesus's record becomes your record. You don't have to strive or toil endlessly anymore. That's the good news. And we could end there. But we got this one last paragraph to uh, look at. And he kind of crystallizes everything anyway in, the, in the, the summary here. See, enjoyment is different from worship. And the preacher's concern is that our enjoyment doesn't become worship. Embracing your life for what it is rather than what you would like for it to be, that's what he's after. He wants you to embrace your life as it is rather than for what you would like it to become. As the old saying goes, you've never seen a U-Haul behind a hearse, have you? No, of course not, right? And we say that tongue-in-cheek and jokingly, but we say that, and we all know deep down inside, you, you can't take it with you. Chapter 5, verse 15, I apologize, I'm jumping up. Uh, to the previous, the uh, one, two, third paragraph. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. Wow. Accumulate, 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 accumulate. Then you have nothing. You can't take any of it. Listen to David Gibson again. He says, life is not about the meaning that you can create for your own life, or the meaning that you can find in the universe by all your work and ambitions. You do not find meaning in life simply by finding a partner or having kids or being rich. Listen, you find meaning when you realize that God has given you life in this world and any one of those things as a gift to enjoy. Look at the passage uh, again from chapter 5 and the last one from, from chapter 9. And, and I'm not going to read through them again, but if you had a pencil or a pen or a highlighter or something like that, I just, I just, I would just draw your attention to how many times you see the word joy in those two paragraphs. Enjoyment, joy, rejoice, something like that. There's a lot of it there. Right? Now, if you look at the last paragraph, I promise we're going to look at the last paragraph now. The key to taking the preacher's advice here is you have to experience God's approval for you in Jesus Christ. What does he say? Well, let me jump back to John 15, which was the assurance of pardon. And there Jesus says, if you abide in my love, the love that sent me to rescue you from the clutches of sin and death, not the love of another person, not the love of work, not the love of anything this world has to offer. Abiding in his love means you'll have his joy. And if you have his joy, it will make your joy full. Because he gives you a joy that can't be taken away. It's not a joy that fluctuates. It's not a joy that's affected by whether you are uh, requested to wear a mask or not or whether you have to do this, or whether you have to do that. It's full-on, consistent joy, because it's joy in him. And then you, he says, at that point, you'll be able to eat and drink and find enjoyment in your toil, which I think some form of that is in every one of the passages uh, on the sheet there, all four of those paragraphs. If not, it's at least in three, where he actually says, Rejoice in your toil, chapter 5, verse 19. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. You hear all that joy? 
all that enjoyment of what it is that you get to do. And in fact, he will not remember the last verse there of uh, the third paragraph, chapter five, verse 20. He will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Do you want that? Do you want to be so occupied with the joy of Jesus, the fullness of joy that comes because of abiding in his love that you don't even remember the days of your life? What did you do last week? Well, I, I mean, I went to work and I went out to dinner a couple of times and um, my wife and I took a walk around the lake or this, that, or the other. It just sort of floats off into the ether of your memory. Because you're so occupied with joy, the joy of the Lord that is our strength. Verse 7, chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 7, so the last paragraph there. Verse 7 begins with the word go, as if to say, seize the day. Set about the day intentionally, on purpose. Eat and drink with gladness and joy. You've all experienced that, right? You know, the joy on the face of the person who receives a gift that you give, that's part of the reason that you give. You can't wait to see their face. Parents giving to children, uh, Christmas time is a perfect example of that. You give and you can't wait to see the look on the face of the person who's receiving the gift. You experience pleasure seeing their pleasure at your gift. God is no different. We're imitating God when we do that. And the only right way to enjoy God's good gifts and to his pleasure in giving us food and wine and family is to go and enjoy them. Now, I mean, we're calling you to a lot of difficult things from this pulpit on a weekly basis, but surely that one that I just told you is the best one or the easiest one or the less intimidating one, right? I'm telling you, go and enjoy the good gifts that God has put in your life. Eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. Go on, if you're married, verse 9, enjoy life with your wife. He doesn't say put up with your wife. He doesn't say manage. He says enjoy. Right? That's marriage. Don't use each other for gain, the preacher says. Enjoy each other as a gift. And then, then you'll be able to work both of you, as your relationship radiates with joy. See, your portion of toil under the sun, whatever your hand finds to do, becomes something to pursue and perform with all your might. Verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do. Because it's a gift from God. And all of God's gifts are good because they're from his hand, even as they come to us in a fallen world. Last quote from David Gibson. He says, sin fractures everything. It distorts everything. It means we cannot understand everything, but sin does not uncreate everything. So go, enjoy. And ultimately what we're experiencing in the gifts and enjoyments of the world, from pleasure to work to knowledge, is a foretaste. Because God's good world is to be enjoyed as we feast and serve each other. And we, we eat and we drink as we vanish from the earth like a vapor. But one day... Because of Jesus, we will eat and drink in the city of the king where death will be vaporized forever. And those without Jesus, the problem in our culture uh, too much is that uh, those without Jesus often abandon themselves to eating and drinking and being merry because at times it appears that's all we have to do before we die. But those with Jesus, 
cherish eating and drinking with joy now because it looks a little bit like what we will do after we die. Those gifts are from the real country, the far kingdom. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 18. What I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Do you believe that? In Jesus, God has already approved of you. Whatever your toil, whatever your toil, it's not in vain. So rejoice in it. Let's pray. Father, what a good and gracious Father you are. Thank you that you love to give good gifts to your children. And we ask that you would help us eat and drink and find enjoyment in our work, in the toil that you give to us, because it's all a gift from your hand anyway. Forgive us for treating any of your gifts as tools to be used for gain for ourselves and to manipulate and despise others, but remind us that the gift of Jesus Christ frees us because in him we are loved. In him we find joy, a fullness of joy that can pervade everything we do. Oh, Father, give us that joy that it might radiate out of us and that we might enjoy the gifts that you have placed in our lives to eat and drink and find joy in our toil. For your name's sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Uh, the hope of the gospel is, as you go, he goes with you. And so each week we get to kind of do one last stamp, right? Sear it into the, the uh, deep recesses of your heart as you go with these words. So the last words that you hear, hopefully, uh, what they're intended to do is shore everything up. Uh, so that as you go, you're reminded he sends you out to love and serve him with a gladness and a singleness of heart that only he can give. And a joy that comes only in abiding in his love. So receive these words, take them with you, hold on to them tight this week. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.